Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Laura Speakerman. She's the co-founder and chief revenue officer at Alloy, an operating system for identity and financial services, including KYC, AML, and fraud management services. Alloy's API enables financial services companies to better manage their digital onboarding and identity requirements, increasing conversion and reducing fraud for banks and fintechs alike. Alloy has been recognized as one of the emerging leaders in their field and works with both fintech companies and banks, including clients like Marketa, Petal, Brex, Radius Bank, and many more. Prior to Alloy, Laura led business development and partnerships at an ACH payment startup and was on the research and investment team at Imprint Capital Advisors. Laura is a proud Barnard College alumna and lives in Oakland, California. And now I hope you enjoy my conversation with the talented Laura Speakerman. All right, Laura. Well, thank you for joining us on the Words and Fintech podcast. Can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Laura Speakerman. I'm a co-founder and chief revenue officer at Alloy. Um, I, we started Alloy about five years ago. My co-founders and I um, had worked together previously at a fintech company. And before that, sort of the start of my fintech career back in 2010, I think, um, something like that, was in Kenya, uh, where I was working on, I was the first employee at a company called Copo Copo that was integrating um, P2P payments. M-Pesa payments for people who are familiar with M-Pesa into back office systems for small and medium-sized businesses. So if you were a barbershop, you could disperse and collect payments via M-Pesa. And that experience got me really interested in financial services infrastructure. And so um, kind of, you know, years later, here I am still kind of focused on on infrastructure there. That's very interesting. How did you end up in, in Kenya as the first employee? I was headed towards law school, so I was graduated college in 2008. I really didn't know. I just had kind of one track, which was law school. I never thought about what other kinds of jobs there were. It just sort of never occurred to me. And in 2010, I applied and got into law school and then started getting all the, all the loan information about how much I'd have to pay back and started thinking about, you know, do I really want to do this? And if I do... I only have to, you know, I can only go for these really high paying jobs then and then I'm just going to be miserable. And so I was thinking a lot about what do I do if I don't do this thing that I just always thought I would do. And I had written my thesis in college on microfinance and got really interested in the intersection of mobile phones, which were becoming ubiquitous around the world at that point, in microfinance. And so I kind of just scoured the internet and found these two guys in Kenya in Nairobi. They were about to move to Nairobi from Seattle. And I just asked if I could join them. And I was really interested in what they were building. And I was lucky enough to both join something that was, you know, the, the product and 
kind of mission were closely aligned with what I was interested in at that point. And where I got to, uh, they were first-time founders as well. So for me, I got to play a really big role in sort of company building, in fundraising and building a business plan and pricing and talking to customers. So it was a really important experience for me in learning about entrepreneurship as well. So clearly your background in fintech, uh, not just U.S. fintech, but international fintech, shaped your path towards launching Alloy. Was there a particular moment where you and your co-founders really saw this opportunity and decided to, to go for it? Yeah, we were, so in 2015, very beginning of 2015, we were at another company in the ACH payment space. And we were seeing that our clients were using our product at that point to sort of onboard their customers to be able to put money in or take money out of whatever product it was. So funding a brokerage account, for example, or a crypto wallet. And those same customers were using the ACH tool and it was fine, it was working. But one of the things that they kept saying was, this is one piece of my onboarding problem, money in, money out. But the other problem I'm having is around identity. I'm taking in, for every 100 applicants that come to my, my platform and you know, open an account, 50%, 50 of them I send to a manual review process. And at that point, 80% of them just drop out altogether because they don't want to call my call center. They don't want to you know, sit on support for, for weeks at a time, fax in documents. And so we started looking at it and realizing it was actually a very stupid problem, which was that they were using maybe one or two data sources, some of the traditional data sources that are out there, and they're just incomplete. There's no single database in the United States. And this was around when Plaid started emerging. It was when uh, Stripe was already there. So we saw that there were APIs that were being developed for fintech, and we thought this should be one of them. There should be an identity API. We looked around because we wanted to become a customer if there was one already, and there wasn't. So that's when we decided to go build this. API. I can definitely empathize with the need for a platform like this, having worked in, in corporate banking. Yeah. How did you approach the, the very beginning, building this technology, integrating multiple databases? Because this is a lot of data to, that you have to sift through. Yeah, we started it being entirely client-driven. So we actually found a bank that your listeners all know, so but it's a bank that is not a um, a traditional bank. It's a bank that sort of does a lot of fintech activity. We, they were launching a new product at the time, and they were a great building partner for us. So we actually used them as sort of a um, you know first customer and and building partner. So they sat next to us and sort of told us exactly what they would need to have the best in class um, identity experience possible. And that's how we went about actually figuring out what we needed and what kind of the MVP was. We also then, you know, listened to other, we, we did kind of customer interviews before we even had a product. So I probably spent, I don't know, 50 hours collecting sort of, you know, kind of selling a product, even though there wasn't really a product at that point, to a bunch of potential customers and saying, what would you need for this to work for you and for it to be better than what you have today? And honestly, the standards were pretty low because you only needed, I mean, standards are pretty low in a data sense because they're only integrating one or two databases. So if we had those one or two and maybe a couple extra, we were ahead of the game. Of course, the standards were high in many other ways, but from a data perspective, we just had to go kind of get the, the minimum number in there and it was going to be better than what was sort of out in the market and, and what was available today. So we pursued those relationships with um, some of the big public records vendors 
you know, credit bureaus. That took a long time and was really painful, but we only needed a few of them to sort of give ourselves a viable product. How challenging was it to secure those initial meetings and those initial clients? Did you find a lot of resistance? Yeah, you know, I think we we started small, so that would that was helpful. We didn't start with Bank of America. We started with um, the few fintech companies that we could have access to through our networks and customers that we'd met from prior lives, either you know previous jobs or the last ACH company. So we were able to find people just directly through our networks who were interested in what we were building and looking for a better solution already. Um, some of that came through TechStars. We did the TechStars program in 2015. Um, and so there were a lot of kind of mentors and, and operators who are uh, involved in Techstars that we had access to as well. So I think the key there was just starting small and talking to fintech companies first and, and not banks, despite the fact that we did have this bank client. Um, we really didn't pursue banks for a while. I think that was a really good use of our time because we would have spun our wheels and probably not made a lot of traction if we'd just gone after, you know, Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Got it. And so take us through the beginning once you've built the product, right? You have this product, it's, uh, it's ready to go. What did you learn at the very beginning with your initial customers and how did you adapt going forward? Yeah, I think the earliest lesson was something that was probably obvious to anyone who had built products for banks before, but none of us had. So uh, we learned that banks care a lot about data security. They care a lot about credibility. They care a lot about sort of your systems and processes being really, really tight. So a lot of what we invested in early was that stuff. It was SOC 2 compliance. It was buying lots of insurance. It was, you know, building great um, encryption practices, sort of all the stuff that I think most startups in other fields get to put off for a while. And in fintech, what we learned is you just cannot do that. You have to invest in it upfront, which means it costs a lot more money. It might change who you hire. Um, and we didn't really know any of that coming in, but it was certainly a, a kind of the first thing I think we, we realized when we were building it. The second was um, sort of what we talked about, which is there's a few data sources that have an outsized impact. And so we just needed to have, we just need to be a little bit better than what people already had. I think we set ourselves at a baseline of like, if we can perform 20% better than what, in terms of conversion. So for every, you know, for everyone who's applying to open a bank account online or to whatever brokerage app, if we can just convert 20% more people, for example, we'll consider that a win because that's the, in terms of dollar values for these customers, uh, that's a huge impact. Um, and then performance ended up being actually much higher than that with, with very little sort of, um, you know, new data being brought to light. And that was just because we, we started realizing that it wasn't just about better data. It was about using it in a better way. It was about being able to be really dynamic and reactive so you can change a rule or a data source instantly when a fraud ring comes about. Um, and it was about treating the data as holistic, not linear. So what we said is, what we realized is like most processes for, you know, most onboarding application processes are linear and they're kicking you out at some part. You know, you don't meet this threshold, so you're gone. Maybe you missed that threshold by one point. Whereas everything else, if you just continued, everything else would have actually looked good down the chain. Um, and so we started sort of looking at this at a holistic way. So if you are, you know, let's say your email address is fairly new, 
you might get dinged for that and you should get dinged for that. But everything else looks great. Your address looks great. Your name does, you know, your cell phone, all everything else, you two factor to the phone, then you're probably who you say you are. And otherwise you would have been kicked out for that one bad score. So that was an important kind of product lesson early on is that we had to, we had to be sort of building for a very kind of holistic product. Very interesting. And, and tell us a little bit more about your current product suite. How, how does it look like? And, and who are your, your main customers? Yeah, so the product has evolved, but it's still at its core, really an API-driven product. So it's an API that aggregates a whole bunch of third-party data sources, traditional and alternative data sources across risk, fraud, um, compliance, AML, sort of everything in one place, um, even credit. We give you a suite of software around that to help you configure those decisions, manage them, execute them, test them um, on in an ongoing way. And so that has extended itself a little bit to transactions where we also allow you to bring that kind of decision engine to the transaction side, not just to the identity side of, of kind of onboarding. So a user signs up for a bank account, we might decision them immediately, but we'd also decision a $5,000 wire transfer that they do 30 days into that relationship. Um, so that's kind of the, the core product has always been that way, but we've evolved. And as we've served larger and larger financial institutions, we've built more features and functionality, of course, into, into the product. We've also invested a lot more in data science so that we always have sort of the best in class data sources available, best in class fraud models. Everything that we bring to bear is really going to be kind of the best there is because we aggregate all the vendors that are out there. And so we're able to constantly update what, what really is most effective. And our clients range from very early stage fintech companies. So it could be five people with an idea, haven't launched the product yet and all the way to top 20 banks in the United States and sort of everything in between. Big focus on community banks, credit union, growth stage fintech companies. So we there are companies like Marketa, Brex, lots of you know banks like that, or, or fintech companies like that. And then lots of um, banks like Happy State Bank, MBC Rising Bank, Radius Bank. So a lot of, lot of community banks as well. That makes sense, uh, particularly for the community banks, right? As a, uh the cost of compliance activities has gotten more expensive over the last 12 years, right? Uh, it's become increasingly harder for community banks. What would you say is your value proposition for top 20 banks who say have the internal capabilities and have invested the money to, to implement these uh, technologies? Yeah, that's one of the hardest pitches we have to make because especially in the top five, the banks all think that they have done this themselves or that they are doing it themselves. I have a hard time believing it. I haven't seen any of the banks actually do it themselves, um, including the ones who have told me that they're doing it. And you can see, you know, Chase killed Finn. You've, you've seen some of these product, these digital product launches not work in large part because of onboarding and identity. So it's a hard pitch to make. I'm you know, not going to deny that. But I think that the best sort of way to put it is that building an API like Alloy is just is, is using developer hours in probably a, in not a great way. Your developers should be focusing on the user experience. They should be focused on you know, how money is going to move, all sorts of things. There's a lot of work to do in building a really great consumer fintech company um, or, or product. And Alloy is giving you the building blocks. And so it's it's really about just your developer hours and how you think that they should be best spent. Very few people can really make the argument that those hours are best spent 
integrating a bunch of data sources and then maintaining it over time. The maintenance is a huge factor here. Maintaining it over time as you update those data sources, update rules that are hard-coded, all this stuff is just a huge overhead. And in fact, we've actually had some companies who built a really robust version of Alloy internally switch over to Alloy you know, a year in when they realize a huge amount of their kind of overhead costs are going towards maintaining this, this set of data sources and kind of identity platform. Got it. And, and your clients are U.S.-based, correct? Or, or do you have also... That's right. Almost all of our clients are U.S.-based. We have a couple of uh, Canadian companies as well. Got it, got it. Can we talk a little bit about the internal company culture, right? Sure. Was it something that you set out uh, at the beginning? Uh, you had a deliberate culture. And if so, how did you build it? How have you seen it evolve over time? We certainly didn't start out with, you know, values written down anywhere that, you know, in some ways I, we probably should have, but we didn't start that way. I think we, we, the culture evolved over time, both um, as a representation of who we were as founders, but also what we aspired to. So things that didn't necessarily come naturally to us, but things that we really thought were going to be important as we hired people who were different from us and, and sort of built a team to reflect where we wanted to go. Um, in large part, I think that Delta is attributed to us being kind of young, inexperienced, first-time founders who didn't have long careers in banking, for example. Um, and I think that was a good thing. We didn't come with a lot of preconceived notions. I don't, I really don't believe that a team of former bankers or former regulators would have built what we've built. So I think that was a good thing, but that definitely leaves some gaps. We, we went through a process about a year ago of trying to sort of better define some of our values, especially as we were going to be scaling up the team. So today we, you know, we have real core values. We talk about them, but I think it, they came from some things that we sort of knew, you know, deep down. So one is that we, we knew who we were. We were not going to pretend that we were old stodgy bankers. It just wasn't who we, you know, who we were. So part of what we think is like, we should just be ourselves. Um, and so that meant some of those, the values that kind of come from that are uh, celebrating differences and being bold. So those are two that we, you know, we prescribe to at Alloy and I think are important in informing the team and, um, and letting people come to work as themselves and they don't have to look like bankers to be a part of Alloy. Um, they can look like bankers though. Another one was that we wanted to be really serious about compliance. We knew we were building this product, and I think especially to kind of compensate for the fact that we were relatively inexperienced, we knew we'd be judged, you know, even sort of more stringently. And so we wanted to be really serious about data security, compliance, earn our clients' trust. And for that, we, we now sort of talk a lot internally. We have a value dedicated to this about sort of taking a lot of this stuff really seriously and making sure that our systems and processes and people all reflect that commitment. Um, and I think the last one that's been kind of part of who we were since day one and was one that even though sometimes we want to change things about ourselves, this is one we just knew we wanted to stick with was being scrappy. So we've built a lot with a little. We, we were never, until our Series A, we were never particularly well resourced. We were always a small team. We were always very lean and cheap. And we built a lot with that. And we kind of got to big clients, you know, great product with that and that creativity that I think is built up as a result of having to be scrappy was really important to us. And so that was one that we codified. Got it. And uh, as a, as a female leader 
and entrepreneur in, in the industry. How do you think that outlook, that vision shapes your culture and also your approach to talent uh, recruiting and, and also your approach to leading the company? Yeah, I think I, you know, when I talked about one of our values is celebrate differences. I think, look, I'm not, I'm not even, you know, I'm a white cisgendered woman. Like I'm not a beacon of diversity, but relative to other fintech companies, it is considered diversity, I suppose, to have a woman on the founding team. I took that seriously that I didn't want to be. And in fact, I think I was the only woman for the first like year and a half, two years and, you know, six or seven people. And so that sucked and I didn't like it. And I think I'm a constant um, nagger about this issue. It's just something that I will complain loudly about forever. Um, and I think that my complaining kind of paid off in the fact that my co-founders were hyper aware of those issues because of that nagging. Um, I think also because they're good people who think about things, but I just don't think it comes naturally to most people. So unless you're on the other side, you're not really going to notice. And so that became a big area of focus for us today. We have um, a large representation of women on the team, which I'm really proud of. We have a lot of work to do in other areas of diversity, but we actually are certainly outperforming, I think, our, our peers on most fronts there. So I'm really proud of that. Um, and it never ends. I think it's the other thing that I think drives me crazy about this whole topic is that it all, like, the burden is on women here. The burden was on me at Alloy. The burden is on women broadly to help each other and get jobs for each other and buy products from each other, and which is great. And that's, that's how we've done it. But men don't today at least don't take on much responsibility. There are some exceptions that I'm, you know, happy to happy that there are a few exceptions, but it's really few and far between that men take this kind of burden on themselves. How can we improve? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, you know, hire women, bring them on your podcast. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, write about them. Whatever your platform is, bring them into it. Um, recognize that you probably, you know, you didn't earn your very coveted spot as a white man in fintech because you're just so great. You you probably had other white men helping you, and now you can do the same for women. So some of it's really easy, you know. Go talk to five women who are earlier in their careers than you and see how you might be able to introduce them to two people in your network. You know, try to, if you're looking from a vendor perspective, go talk to some products that are sold by women. I think there's just, there's a number, it can be, you can start really small, it can be really easy, but I think you have to just like take the blinders off first and realize how, how little you might, you might be doing and, and sort of what you, the, the five steps you can take that are going to be, make a big difference in someone's life. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, going back to the business a little bit, we're obviously going through some pretty interesting times. Every single company and location is experiencing a crisis. How has this COVID-19 crisis impacted Alloy? And perhaps most importantly, how has it impacted your clients? Yeah, it's been a really interesting split. So we have kind of two dynamics. Because of our client base, we have two things going on. One is that the early stage fintech clients we have, um, which is by number more than the banks we have, we have quite a few fintech clients, are struggling. So if they didn't raise pre-COVID and they were running low on cash, we're seeing some of them um, you know, get into acquisition scenarios or shutdown or trying to do big layoffs and extend runway, cut vendor contracts. So we're definitely seeing that they're suffering there. 
and we're hoping this all can resume business as usual as soon as possible um, and get the fundraising need and whatever to sort of get back to life there. But it's going to be tough for a while. Um, and we're anticipating that it's going to take longer than we hope there. The other half of our business is banks. And banks have actually done really well here for with respect to Alloy in the sense that they're channeling what was bank traffic. So people walking into branches to open accounts, they're now having to do that online. So for the first time, some of these banks are coming to us and saying, help, you know, we've got to figure out how to solve fraud. We now have twice the number of applicants through these channels than we ever did before, but we don't know how to deal with fraud. Or we're shutting down our branches and call centers are exploding. What do we do? So that's that's been really interesting to see, you know, the dynamic on the bank side um, usage is it has actually really gone up. So I understand by talking to some cybersecurity experts that actually cybersecurity attacks have spiked in this last couple of months. How about fraud? Have you seen anything yeah. there? Yeah, fraud's a big concern. Um, and, and it certainly has gone up for, you know, if you were already using Alloy and deeply deployed with us, you're probably, you're going to see a spike in fraud, but you're not going to actually incur the fraud because we'll catch it. If you are new to Alloy or, you know, if you're like a, a traditional bank thinking about going digital, your fraud has likely gone up because you have those digital channels available, but you haven't yet had the volume to actually learn how to deal with fraud or to react quickly enough. So we're seeing... Um, Spikes in activity there. We're seeing synthetic fraud go up. We're seeing all types of fraud, really. And so it's going to continue to be a problem, especially given that we don't think, you know, COVID at some point will end and we will go back to whatever normal lives we can. But if for the first time you have some segment of the population that has opened up bank accounts online because of COVID, they'll probably stay online. And so I actually think that a lot of this migration towards digital financial services will stay. And so if you have to figure out fraud right now, you're going to have to figure it out for the long haul. And that's part of what we're helping these banks do is sort of institutionalize these fraud practices and get teams used to how to deal dealing with this on an ongoing basis. Got it. Has this situation impacted your plans ahead and how do you envision the future of the company? Yeah, I would say the the biggest impact is that we are planning for, in our scenario planning, we are planning for a real hit on fintech companies. We don't think fintech is going away. So I don't think by any means, this means that like our fintech business is dead and we're now fully a company that sells only to banks. But we do know that our revenues will be impacted from that side of things. And so we are planning to be able to continue to sell those fintech companies, but not double down there the way we had hoped. We had thought 2020, 2021 were, were times where we would really double down on early stage fintech and place our best and, and, you know, hope that we would kind of rise, rise with the winners there. I think that can still happen, but we're not putting all our eggs in that basket. We're also kind of looking at banking more seriously and saying a lot of these banks are dedicating bigger CIO budgets, bigger fraud budgets, bigger sort of projects that really would involve us. And so we're putting additional resources there. Have you considered a more aggressive international expansion? We've not, uh, largely due to focus, not that we think it's a bad idea, that the market doesn't make sense there in, in other parts of the world, but we have a small team, um, have to stay focused where we are right now, and the opportunity in the U.S. and kind of North America is so large. That being said, I think we'll consider probably Europe, most likely, U.K., very likely, from the right client. So we always look for sort of the right first partner or two, client or two, who can help us get to know the market, the data vendors that are relevant there. Um, the regulatory environment. So we look for sort of the right partner who's ideally at scale, but also not a 
slow bureaucratic bank, probably something more like a challenger bank, but we're not actively on the hunt. We're just sort of taking those conversations opportunistically. Makes sense. Great. So we do have uh, quite a few listeners who are either entrepreneurs or aspiring founders. Do you have any reflections on your entrepreneurial journey that you could share with them? Yeah, a lot of things, a lot of mistakes I've made um, along the way. I think the biggest kind of motto I have is learn how to sell. So no matter what you're doing, you're going to be selling. I didn't know how to sell. It's still not like where I'm most comfortable and it's not where I feel like I'm a natural fit, but you have to learn how to sell. You're selling yourself. You're selling your company to investors. You're selling a solution to your first 10 customers that are going to be your most important 10 customers you'll ever have had. Um, and and I, I think that there's so many founders who have a great product and maybe have great technology, but cannot sell it. They, it doesn't come naturally to them. They don't know how to talk about you know, matching problems with solutions. And so I think that's, you can hire people and people have done it, but I really think that if there's one sort of skill you can give yourself, it's, it's learning how to sell. I think I've always prescribed to sort of the idea of like hustling hard and cold calling and getting used to rejection. That's, that's been really important for me personally, whenever I've tried to look for jobs, whenever I've um, you know been in the fundraising process, whenever I've tried to get our first 10 clients, it's been a lot of just go out there, put yourself out there, be confident, tell them that they need the solution and then you're going to be rejected nine times out of 10. That's okay. You're going to move on. You're going to learn. Um, but it doesn't, that was also something that didn't come naturally to me. And I had to sort of develop the, a thicker skin for it. And so whatever you can do to sort of like practice being rejected and practice putting yourself out there, I think really will, will serve you well. Cause you're, you're going to, that's, if you go down the entrepreneurship route, that is, it's a lifetime of rejection ahead of you, but the wins often are enough that it keeps you going. And for women, I would actually say in particular, confidence, super important. I think that there's no overstating that and it doesn't come naturally to a lot of us, but pitching yourself to clients and investors, you have to project confidence and you can fake it and that's okay. I'd recommend looking at Amy Cuddy video, a TED talk online. She has one about power posing. I actually think like I tell all women I talk to, go watch it. If you're someone who doesn't feel like they are confident and powerful in a room, you tend to sort of be on the shyer side, go watch that video and practice it for your next 10 meetings. Uh, it's, it's important. I have to confess, I've watched that video a couple of times have before you? <laughs> going into a job interview. <laughs> there you go. It's helpful for everyone. It really is. There are some men who are just like, and, and some people, not just men, who are super confident and don't need to watch that video. But I think a lot of us, that doesn't, it's like not my natural state by any means, but I have to go in there and tell you that if you give me $10 million, I'm going to someday turn it into like an IPO. I better figure out how to say that confidently. So it, it really helps. Absolutely. Great. Well, no, this has been really fascinating, Laura. Before we go, do you mind telling us a little about your hobbies and some of your activities outside of Alloy? Because uh, I'm sure it's not just work for you. Yeah. No, it's not. I wish I had better hobbies. I should have made some up before this uh, call. But I like cooking. I like gardening. I like hanging out with my husband and dog. Go to the beach. Yeah, being outside as much as we can. We go hiking when I can convince my husband to go hiking. Nothing pretty extreme, but 
it's being in California, um, there are things that are very easily accessible and cheap. So that's my kind of hobby. Particularly important to spend uh, quality time outside these days. It is. Only thing we have going on for us right now. <laughs> Great. Well, Laura, again, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating. I learned a lot. I'm, I'm sure our listeners will love this conversation. And you're always welcome to visit us on campus once, uh, once this is over. I would love to. Thanks, Miguel, for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.